0: This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in the city of Melbourne. Today's big Question, do we need God in outer space? Now, we usually record Bigger Questions before a live audience, but we weren't able to get our guest before a live audience today, but I'm sure you'll enjoy what we have in store. My guest today is Dr Jonathan Clark. Jonathan is a session instructor in astrobiology at Swinburne University, the president of Mars Society Australia, and a director of ISCAST, an organisation for Christians in Science. So, Jonathan, welcome to Bigger Questions. Great to be here. It's terrific. Now, Jonathan, you're the president of the Mars Society Australia. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that you eat lots of Mars bars? Terrible confession, I actually don't like Mars Oh, Mars. no. Oh, okay. So that's not what it's about then?
1: <laughs> Sadly for some people, no, it's not. So what does the Mars Society Australia do then? What, what, what does that mean? Uh, Mars Society Australia is part of a network, uh, inter- an international network of uh, non-profit societies that are... Working towards the goal of human presence on Mars. So we support, but through lobbying of governments for expanded space programs, uh, we played a very small role in the various statements that eventually led to Australia very belatedly getting a space program. Mm -hmm. Uh, Probably we can claim (laughs) 0.001% of the credit for that. But you you were there. You you had something, you you were there. That's right, through the Academy of Sciences. So... That, that's one part. We uh, also support expanded commercial activities because any kind of space program uh, is underpinned by uh, industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also do public education and outreach. Mm-hmm. And the last thing we do is we we do our own Mars research through uh, expeditions in simulated Martian uh, habitats and yep. environments, through studying areas on Earth that provide analogs to features that we see on Mars uh, and... Um, Processing the data from Mars, which is all publicly available off the internet, mm-hmm. uh, and building some hardware.
0: So, what fascinates you about Mars, though?
1: Well, uh, after the Moon, it's the next step. We, uh, we've been to the Moon. Uh, mm-hmm. Hopefully, we'll go back again soon. Yep. Uh, but it's the next step beyond that, and unlike the Moon, it's a vastly more habitable place. Right, because
0: it's not. I mean, because Venus is closer, but it's not particularly
1: habitable though. Yet uh, Venus is, um, to put it mildly, a hellhole. <laughs> uh, the pressure on the surface is uh, equivalent. Uh, to a depth of 700 metres in the ocean, so it's uh, 70 atmospheres. The surface temperature is 500-odd uh, degrees Celsius. Uh, in fact, it's so hot that the highest mountains on uh, on Venus have metallic snow. So uh, metals like zinc or lead are actually gases in the atmosphere of Venus, and then when uh, as they rise up, just like water vapour on Earth, uh, uh, when it rises, it cools and forms snow. On the surface of uh, the, the mountains on Venus, there's a metallic snow. Mm. So not the place I really would like to go to <laughs> even for a holiday. It's not even
0: for a summer holiday perhaps or no. a, a winter holiday, a winter break. It's not particularly it, – it, it'll be warm but it's probably too warm. That's right, yeah. yeah. So Mars has some, uh, is somewhat habitable then or is a potentially habitable or more friendly atmosphere, I suppose. Is that a better way of putting it?
1: Well, it's still a very hostile place. In many ways, uh, more hostile than most other parts of Earth uh, mm-hmm. There's a very thin atmosphere, equivalent to an altitude of thirty odd kilometres in our atmosphere. So you'd have to wear an environment suit, a pressure suit. Uh, it's uh, very uh, can get very cold, particularly at night, uh, down to minus 140 at the poles. At the equator, uh, a summer night is about minus uh, 70. So, uh, so it's it's quite chilly, but. The thing about Mars is we can walk around on the surface in a, in a pressure suit. You yep. can't do that on Venus. I mean, you'd need a, something like a refrigerated uh, submarine to <laughs> go around on the surface of, Mar- of Venus. Right. Uh, so you can walk around on the surface. We can see the surface from Earth. Mm. Uh, it has a day which is uh, only about 40 minutes longer than our day, so it rotates on its axis. It has seasons. Uh, the axial tilt is almost exactly the same as ours, 24 versus 23 degrees. Uh, so there's spring and summer and autumn and winter, uh, and it has weather. It's got clouds, it has storms, uh, and um, it's a place that we can see ourselves walking, living mm. on and walking around with the appropriate technology. Mm. So why has Mars captured your imagination? So because it's the only planet whose surface we can see through a telescope, mm-hmm. uh, at least easily, mm. um, other than the moon, Um Mars is a place that people have always seen as somewhere we can go. I mean, people talked about going to Venus before and, you know, beneath the clouds, they imagined all sorts of strange uh, worlds and environments. But Mars, uh, you could actually say, well, we're going to be rock people could imagine going to specific locations that Mm. were named that we can see through the telescope. So people could Imagine going there with some degree of of realism. Yeah. So when people started crunching the numbers and talking about propulsion, of course, it became very easy to uh, imagine what it would be like to go there. So it's had a unique place after the moon as a place where we can go Mm. and uh, and live and work. For me, well, I'm a child of the space age. I was born uh, less than a year after Sputnik and uh, um, I grew up during Apollo. Uh, I can remember the first... Uh, unmanned landing on the moon. I think it was the first robotic mission I remember. That was Luna, mm-hmm. Luna Nine in 1966. I can remember Gemini Three as the first man mission I can I can recall. Uh, and this all was in my my <laughs> upbringing. in your childhood. In, this yeah, in the atmosphere. And and you know, like most children, I'm fascinated about the the world around me. And this is the time when our world got a lot bigger, and we were talking about building the machines to go there. So that always. Appeal to me. Uh, I used to make model spaceships uh, out of balsa wood and so on. And (laughs) I wrote a story about the first Mars mission uh, when I was in high school in the early 70s. So yes, I've been a Mars nut for a very, very, very (laughs) long time. Now, you mentioned
0: before that you've actually done some Martian simulation, so to speak. So in a sense, you've actually lived on Mars. Um, Can you tell us about that? Mm.
1: The uh, US Mars Society runs two analog stations. Uh, These are Uh, stations, we call them tuna cans because they're like a tin of tuna, eight metres across, eight metres high. Uh, One in Utah and one on Devon Island in the Canadian Arctic. And they are similar to some of the habitats that people have designed that would be landed on Mars by rocket propulsion and people would live in for 18 months at a time. And we research various aspects of what it would be like to live and work on Mars. Now, Mm. we're a shoestring organisation. Uh, so we can't simulate everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, even with a million dollars, you can't simulate Martian gravity, for example, or no. the, the low-pressure environment. But we can look at operations. Uh, how how much work can you go outside and do in a day in a in a space suit? Well, you've got to wear a space suit and you've got to... We wear a simulated space suit. Yeah, yeah. So um, what
0: was that experience like?
1: It was great. Yeah? <laughs> um, I, it, I found a hab very, very uh, cosy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's about... Uh, a small flat and you're sharing it with five or six other people uh, but it's surprisingly roomy and if you all get along which is very important yeah it's, it's like home and, and going outside in, in your EVA suit it it is remarkably comfortable you're enclosed you know, you're cut off from the icy wind of, the, of Utah winter mm-hmm. um, which is probably
0: still a bit warmer than Martian winds I suppose
1: uh, well, it um, it got down, I guess, down to minus 15 in Hanksville in Utah in winter, so you can get, you know, well into the Martian temperature range, <laughs> and, um, you yeah, know, you've got the, the sound of the air vents coming through, and, and, and you know that, you know, your life doesn't depend on it, but it, your comfort certainly depends mm. on that, because it gets very stuffy if your suit isn't ventilated very quickly, so... Yeah, and you and you do the stuff you're doing in. You know, you're looking for uh, microbial colonies or you're mm. looking for, looking at rocks because I'm a geologist and so rocks fascinate me. And uh, <laughs> you're doing all the things that you would be doing on Mars. You're, you're doing engineering tasks, yeah. you're fixing things, you're tying stuff down in the wind and so on. So it becomes your own little world. Mm. So what did you learn? Well, uh, I've been there uh, multiple times um, I learned a lot about the local geology Mm -hmm. and uh, as it turned out that the area in Utah uh, mimics some of the things we've subsequently found on Mars. So we're actually able to... Uh, sea features help us understand Martian geological processes, which mm-hmm. are very nice. In the Arctic, when I was there in 2017, uh, I was mapping uh, slope streaks, uh, water-related features coming down the wall of the Horton Impact Crater, which is where the station is, and these mimic features that we see on Mars. And um, by studying them, uh, I get some idea as to uh, some constraints, perhaps the best way to put it, on the uh, these features, these slope streaks we see on Mars that may be water-related. Mm. So then, would you like to go to Mars? Absolutely.
0: Yeah, yeah. But would you like to stay?
1: Uh, since my family wouldn't be going and, and <laughs> uh, uh, the cat won't be going, I'd definitely want to come back. Now, science
0: fiction of the past has depicted Mars being inhabited by little green men. Now, I'm not sure exactly how accurate that is, but is there likely to be life on Mars?
1: That's one of the reasons why we study astrobiology. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know, the earliest books about Mars, uh, the earliest speculation about Mars, uh, made it very Earth-like. It had oceans like Earth. It had, uh, We know it has, of course, seasons and a 24-hour day and so on, uh, clouds and, and weather. Uh, and the dark areas was thought to be oceans and the bright areas were thought to be land. Uh, as... Telescopes improved, and as people uh, did better and better observations, realized, in fact, in some ways, it was very unlike Earth. You know, the air pressure is 30 kilometers, equivalent to 30 kilometers above yeah. the ground. Uh, it's very cold uh, most of the time. Uh, there's high levels of cosmic radiation, not as high as some people make out, um, but certainly higher than we experience in most parts of the mm. surface of the Earth. So it seemed more and more inhospitable. Yeah. But life on Mars, uh, what we're looking for is niches where life like we can imagine it, uh, based on what we know about terrestrial life, uh, life as we know it perhaps, uh, can survive. Um, Just beneath the soil, which would protect you from the ultraviolet uh, radiation, uh, just above the permafrost, which might be seasonally melting and getting moisture, uh, is one place we would look.
0: Now, you you obviously, in the Mars Society, you consider space exploration beyond Mars as well. So what about the rest of the universe? Is there life out there?
1: Well, I think as we go beyond uh, Mars, I mean, the, the possibilities open up, and not only to life as we know it, uh, but also uh, life as we perhaps just can barely imagine it. Uh, remember in 1996, we first, we discovered the first uh, planets beyond our solar system. Mm. So exoplanets. Exoplanets. This is this is a brand new discovery uh, 25, 25 years ago. Before that... We didn't know of any. There was speculation. Some of you even said, oh, well, planets are incredibly rare. And so mm. there's there's now. Now we know of thousands. Mm. Um, and uh, we can start actually doing meaningful statistics. So there's certainly planets out there, and some of these may well have habitable planets. Some of them, uh, the planets themselves, form what we call the habitable zone where it's not too hot, it's not a, too cold. It's the Goldilocks zone, Goldilocks isn't it? zone, yes, going around stars that are well-behaved. They don't sort of erupt and send big flares out into space and so on. So the possibility of life in the universe appears far more likely than it did 25, 30 years ago. Right, yeah. Well, now, author and thinker C.S.
0: Lewis wrote an essay in 1958, Will We Lose God in Outer Space? Now, he wrote it because scientists had discovered that the universe was unimaginably huge with many potential habitable planets, the implication that there could be many life forms in the universe, and this would undermine our special place in the world, and hence we may lose God in outer space. So is God under threat if we find life elsewhere?
1: Well, if we believe that uh, God is the creator of uh, everything in the universe, then uh, obviously not mm-hmm. uh, because alien life would be part of, uh, God, part of God's creation and part of, uh, of his plan for the universe. Look, historically, uh, you go back to the 18th century and 19th century, people thought that the entire universe was uh, full of life. Right. People talked about there was life on the sun. Wow, uh, and the moon and all the planets, and it was the idea, it was the the principle of plenitude that there would be if there was no life on these other worlds, it would be a waste of space, and mm. and God wouldn't waste space in the universe by creating a world without life, so therefore there's life everywhere, and there are also non-Christian versions of that argument as well. So, John, you are a Christian believer, so why why do you believe in God? Well, I think like for most of us, uh, there's no single, simple answer for that. Yeah, it's like like asking why does someone uh, you know, love their, their partner. Why does someone vote a particular way? There's rarely a single Single, there's single no thing. one single thing. Now, I, I so grew what, up. What was your yeah. story then? So, what, what convinced you
0: that, that this was possible, this was true?
1: Well, my parents are Christians. Mm-hmm. Uh, They're missionaries in Thailand. Uh, so, I grew up in an environment that was very non Christian. And uh, uh, But yes, there was a very clear distinction between. Uh, the Christian worldview, uh, which my parents and the local church, which they worked, uh, epitomized, and the surrounding uh, the, uh, the surrounding world. My parents were very good parents, and although they brought me up in a particular way, they always made it very clear that this isn't something uh, that's part of your culture, and therefore you just assume. Uh, everybody has to make a personal uh, decision about uh, which way they're going to follow. Are they yeah. going to accept God, say yes to God, or are they going to say no to God? Uh, and um, and so I, I made that decision at quite a young age. I think I was eight or nine. Uh, but, you know, we make lots of decisions at that age yeah. and subsequently. And so right through your life you're constantly either uh, uh, reaffirming or rejecting you know, the decisions of views you have at earlier phases of your yeah. life yeah. and uh, or reaffirming.
0: Reevaluating. Re-
1: reevaluating and reshaping them. And so, uh, yes, I became a Christian at a young age. Um, I grew brought up in a Christian family. But uh, it's always been a conscious choice, a constant, a constant decision. Uh, I've always been fascinated by the world ar- around me. I, you know, first of all wanted to... Be, uh, Go to the moon. (laughs) I've always been interested in astronomy. Then I became, you know, growing up on a tropical island. You know, I took up snorkeling, and then I wanted to be a marine biologist. Yeah. Uh, And then uh, when I discovered I couldn't. Uh, I didn't have the mathematics to be an astronomer, and I really didn't like cutting up dead animals or experimenting on live ones. So that sort of made the biology was out. So I ended up being uh, a geologist. I mean, rocks don't need a lot of mathematics to understand, and right. know, fossils have been safely dead for a few million years, so <laughs> you know, there's no ethical issues about cracking a, a fossil open to see what's inside. So that understanding of the world around me, both I think it was innate, as it often is in children, but it both fed my my um, uh, my faith because uh, I could see the wonder of the world and mm. that made me appreciate God as creator as well as redeemer uh, in, in my life, in the world around me, but also my growing theological understanding, my Christian understanding also made me appreciate the world mm. um, uh, much more. So is there anything particular that
0: pushed you to stay a Christian after you made that decision as eight or nine? Like were there anything in particular that think actually this, this really is real, this is really what I, is for me?
1: Uh, no one particular event, but just a sort of a constant affirmation, sometimes just in how, how the world makes sense and how the Christian perspective makes sense, uh, particularly as you know, we're not talking about just a, a philosophical perspective here. Mm. But, I mean, you know, Christianity stands a fall on the falls on the life of Jesus. Yes and you know constantly going back to you know this extraordinary life you know only 3 years of ministry 2000 years ago in uh, the back of burke of yes. uh, of the <laughs> roman <laughs> the empire world. yes right yeah uh, beyond the black stump uh, radically changed the people he encountered and radically changed the world since then uh, for the better now, despite the appalling failures of many people who have called themselves his his followers uh, his followers, uh, his followers uh, nonetheless you yeah, know that life that death and the the the, uh, the resurrection that transformed his his followers uh, make so much sense of everything else that happens mm. that how could I not <laughs> that reaffirmation and constant rediscovery you know how can I not keep going. So do you think that God would still be with you if you travelled to Mars? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Psalm 139, if I ascend to the heavens, you are there, but descend to the deepest parts of the earth, you are there. So uh, wherever we go, we cannot get away from God. Right, yes, yes. So in what other ways then do you think you need God? Uh, me personally? or yeah. Well... It's like saying, you know, you know, in what other ways do I need oxygen? <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, um, I mean, the, or, or, or light. Um, I mean, the, the my understanding of uh, of the Christian faith and all that entails, you know, illuminates every aspect of my life and, uh, and has you know, something to say about all areas. Um, sometimes, not very flattering things to say, but mm. yeah, you know, that's, that's part of being an imperfect uh, Christian. Mm. Um, you know, trying to follow uh, what I understand God wants me to do to, yeah. to the best of my ability by His grace. So, mm. uh, yeah, it's it's very hard for me to imagine what it might be like to live without that, other than you know, rather sad. Right. <laughs>
0: Now, in the Old Testament book of Job, Job speaks about the God of the Bible by saying in Job 9, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and the Orion, the Pleiades, and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. Now, the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades are all constellations in the sky. Does it surprise you then that starry constellations are mentioned in the Bible?
1: No, uh, because you know the people who wrote the Bible, who read the Bible uh, in common with every other human being who lived on the planet until the early 20th century, uh, were intimately familiar with the night sky. Mm. I mean, the, the invention of electricity has banished the night sky from the consciousness of almost everybody. Yes, certainly uh, in the yeah. urban people. Certainly urban people who are the majority of the people on, the, on earth now and perhaps even before then with gas lights and so on. Mm. And, and that is a great tragedy that we have, uh, that, that we have lost that perspective. So the connection though for these people was that they saw that, well, they
0: recognised the importance of these constellations but it does say here that uh, he's the maker he's
1: he's the maker so that yes so this is just part of the the old overall picture That god is maker of heavens and earth and uh, and all that is in them uh, you know the seas and the dry land and uh, and the rest and so yeah the stars are just part of that mm. and uh, this is one of the uh one of the many perhaps the biggest contrast between uh, the biblical world view compared to the world view of the other peoples around the babylonians and egyptians and so on uh, in that uh, the stars for them were divine beings or manifestations of divine beings, whereas uh, for the biblical worldview, uh, they were created objects, you know, beautiful, mysterious, useful, uh, majestic, um, but they were created entities just whatever they were, uh, just like trees and rocks and hills and and rivers and and themselves. And so in one sense, they're they're wonderful and beyond everything, but on the other hand, there's this great entity, a great, not entity, this great commonality between the familiar and down to earth. And God was over all.
0: So do you think, though, that Job and ancient biblical authors would have had any conception that we could potentially travel to these places?
1: I don't think they'd have had a clue. Uh, I mean, we know from... Uh, contemporary writings uh, that uh, up to about 500 B.C., everybody thought the world was flat. I mean, the ancient Greeks, as far as we know, among the earliest, if not the earliest people, recognised that we live on a sphere. Uh, There was a view that the sky was a, um, a dome, with you know, a bit higher than the clouds, with you know, stars and planets—stars uh, fixed to it, planets, sun, moon moving across it—and there's probably a, a, a subterranean ocean. Uh, mm. Perhaps connected to the oceans upwelling around the edges of this dome to form our seas. Uh, a very, very different world picture, not worldview, a very different world picture mm. uh, to ours. And the biblical language in the Old Testament is entirely congruent with that. yeah um, it talks about, well, it, 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 you know, God stretching out the heavens like a like a tent, like a solid structure. <laughs> what says he He alone stretches out the heavens? Yes. Um, and you know the idea of the, of the primordial ocean, which existed before uh, the land, we get that in Genesis one. So the word, the language of the of the of the Old Testament in particular, and the land and the world picture that seems to be embodied by the language is very congruent with the, the best knowledge of the day.
0: Mm. So, so does that, why can we believe it then? Is this flat Earth kind of thinking?
1: Well, there's a distinct there's a distinction between world view and world picture. Right. So the world picture is entirely. Uh, congruent with, a, with, with the the best science a, a, of the day. A flat earth yeah. perspective, which is what the, modern sci- the scientists of the ancient times thought. Yes, and with perfectly good reason. Mm. I mean, uh, in, in 3,000 years, people will laugh at our science too. I mean, because, <laughs> a, you know, what's all this quantum mechanics nonsense? You know? <laughs> so, uh, but that's the best science that we have, so we interpret things in the light of our science. Now, if God was to reveal himself, which is what the Bible says, to humanity, he's got to do that in... A way that is understandable. Yeah. So the, the biblical language has to be congruent with what people could understand, but the content of that language was completely revolutionary. So the world p- uh, view of the Bible, mm. you know, God is not God just being the, the maker, the maker of heaven and earth. I mean, you know, Genesis one is many, many things, and one of the things is it's a it's a, a polemic against the whole polytheistic worldview of the time that uh, you know. The sky, you know, Nut, the ancient Egyptian goddess of the sky. Mm. I mean, the earth, you know, the Greek you know, Gaia, um, uh, and the idea of the heavens and the earth being some sort of goddess that was cut in, a, cut in half by Marduk uh, and uh, made, uh, uh, you know, Tiamat was the goddess sliced mm. in half by this bloodthirsty war god Marduk. Mars, ironically. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, things being made out of blood and guts and everything else. Yeah. Uh, but the Christian view is very different. No. God makes the sky. God mm. makes the oceans. I mean, the, the sun and moon were these manifestations, divine beings, are just lights. Mm. Oh, And incidentally, he makes the stars also, and they're also divine beings. Mm. And so the whole thing is that the, all of these things that people worshipped were just material objects. They were under the kind of governance of the great creator. That's right, uh, who, who is above and beyond everything, and yet nonetheless yeah, comes and speaks to people, mm. to Abraham, calls Abraham, yeah, and the rest. Now, modern science does reveal a very different conception of the universe to the one
0: of the world of Job has written, hmm. which we've just touched on in some ways. But we now know that there are actually billions and billions and billions, perhaps even trillions of galaxies, right. many more than what would have been visible to the naked eye. So, what are the implications of this? Would we lose God when we get to a universe far bigger than ever conceived by Job?
1: Well, there's a lovely phrase in uh, Lewis's uh, novel Prince Caspian where uh, the, the children go back to Narnia and it's all changed all very different and then the youngest of the children Lucy meets Aslan again for the first time and, and she says you've grown bigger and Aslan says that's because you've grown and, and I think as uh, that is true for us that uh, as we as we grow as people God grows as well. Not that God needs to grow, mm. but our understanding of who God is grows to match that. Mm. And so perhaps we should turn that question around. And you know, when when the writers of Job, the writers of the Psalms, talk about the splendor of God revealed in the heavens, and we think, yes, you know, they thought that, that the, you know, the sky is a dome and you know, perhaps a bit higher than the clouds and so on. What they saw could make them worship God and be, uh, through all the, as a result of all the awe and wonder they felt. We know what the universe is like much better than they did. How much awe should we feel? How much more is there an obligation on us to worship God because of that knowledge? Mm.
0: A philosopher of religion, Nicholas Everett, once said that the findings of modern science significantly reduce the probability that theism is true because the universe is turning out to be very unlike the sort of universe we would have expected had theism been true. So given the size of the universe, is God
1: unnecessary? You know, if God cares for all of his creation, size doesn't matter. Mm. In the end, it's not size, it's significant. If God finds us significant, then we are significant. Another way of looking at it is for a planet capable of sustaining life as we know it to appear and then life to uh, appear on that planet and for the life to develop to the point where it is self-aware like we are, uh, some more than others perhaps, uh, the universe has to be the size it is. It has to be the age it is. Mm. Uh, if it was any smaller, we wouldn't be here. Mm. Uh, and so uh, that's another way is that the universe is as big as it has to be to sustain our Us. own life. Yeah. So Jonathan, do we need God in outer space? We need God in uh, space, in space travel, uh, as much as we need God here. We'll take faith with us, but God will be there wherever we go. Well, let me leave you with
0: the part of the Bible's answer to the big question. Do we need God in outer space? From Job 9, 8 and 9. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and the Orion, the Pleiades and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Thanks very much to our guest today. Dr. Jonathan Clark. Thank you. Enjoy bigger questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as one dollar a
1: podcast. Support the show, go to patreon.com slash bigger questions.